Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Now, uh, we realize that we try every week that you would walk away with something from the Word. I mean, it, it, it's a waste of time to get together and dig into Word and you go, well, great, what was that about? I don't know. But, but there's also a larger whole that we are working in the midst of. Uh, and if you remember, a, a few weeks ago we started in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What does it mean to be transformed? And then what does it mean to live that out? And then we dealt with uh, the maelstrom. And, and how do we live in the midst of the chaos of the world around us? How are believers supposed to, to function? How is it that we are supposed to live out the Christian life? And this is all part of the larger whole of the entire summer that we'll be spending on the fruit of the Spirit. And it's not just, well, what does it mean to be patient and what does it mean to be joyous, as if there was something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is how do I live the patient life in the midst of this world? How do I live the joyous life out there in the world? There's one thing to say, oh, I come here on Sunday and I I live the joyous life. What does it mean? when I go into the world? What does it mean when I face my fellow co-workers who don't believe? What does it mean when I face adversity to be patient and how do I demonstrate that in every aspect of my life? Because the Christian is called to live differently. If we look just like the world around us, uh, then we're, as we talked about in Sunday school, we're the country club. Okay, that's not what we want to be. We are called to be, well, Jesus had several words for it, salt, light, okay, city on a hill. This is what we're supposed to be. And, and you know, if the salt has lost its flavor, it ain't got much in its favor. It's a line from Godspell, okay? <laughs> I remember that. It's stuck in my brain. Okay, so if you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read from Galatians chapter 5. Heavenly Father, come upon us today with your Holy Spirit, that our eyes would be open, our hearts enlightened and ready to receive your word, that what we take in, we might live out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's Galatians 5. I'll start in verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. (laughs) 
This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. We are saved by God's grace, which is extended to us through the work of Jesus Christ. On the cross, the saving work of Christ was accomplished by his resurrection from the dead, ascension to the right hand of the Father. We understand that he rules over everything in all authority until the day the Father sends him back to collect his bride, the church. Nothing can change the will of the Father. Once he saves you from your sin, you are forever secure, and that salvation is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the question is, how should we then live if this is true? I mean, my works don't add anything to God's grace that is given to me, but I have been saved for what? Works that were prepared beforehand, that we should do them. Before the foundations of the world, those works were prepared that those who are in Christ will do them. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's obedience there in that expectation. We are called and commanded to live differently than the world around us. How should we then live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. This was a book written by Francis Schaeffer back in the 70s as his personal analysis to 10 key uh, moments in history which have formed our present culture and which he believed has led to a modern society's very sorry state. That's how he wrote Modern society's very sorry state. And in the book, he offers only one viable answer to the very sorry state of the world. And that is living by the Christian ethic, acceptance of God's revelation, total immersion and affirmation of the Bible's morals, values, and meanings. That's the one solution that Schaefer came up with. For evangelicals, this has been the greatest call outside of Scripture itself to a different way of living than the world around us. Now, there are other ethicists. Uh, Richard Niebuhr is one. From 1951, he wrote the book Christ and Culture. And he listed five different relationships that the Christian has or can have with culture. And then he gives some examples of groups that th would fit this category. The first category is Christ against culture. And we might largely paint them as perhaps the, the Mennonites or Amish who separate themselves from culture and want to have nothing to do with the rest of society around them. You have the Christ of culture, which might be categorized as very liberal Protestants who don't look any different from the world around them. They just show up at church on Sunday. You have Christ above culture, which would be uh, uh, presented in maybe Thomas Aquinas and, and his writings, where you have the Christian life outside of culture, and it runs, um, and culture is over there, but the Christians aren't antagonistic towards culture. We just have our own thing going on. You have Christ and culture in paradox, which would be Martin Luther, and uh, the that that we would function alongside of culture, using culture when appropriate, but not too involved in what the rest of the world is doing. And then the final is Christ, the transformer of culture. And that's where we would find Calvin and most of modern evangelicals. And basically it says evangelicals are called to get in the mix of culture and mix it up and change it. 
Okay, that's the way that those five categories are laid out. So we have Schaefer, who uh, would be the evangelical. We have Niebuhr, kind of the uh, modern-day uh, uh, liberal Protestant. And then, strictly non-believing speaking, we have Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant lived from 1724 to 1804, and he was perhaps the greatest philosopher ever to challenge the church on the things of how it is that we should believe. He was a man that, he never traveled more than 60 miles from the place that he was born, but his writings impact us, well, even today, in, in how, we, how we wrestle with these things. Kant agrees with Schaeffer that there is a moral imperative for humanity, that we are to be different, we are to act differently, but Kant comes at it from a different perspective. He says immorality is irrational. Okay, if you're bad, you're just simply irrational. Uh, I, don't, if, I put it in the translation of Randy: If you're immoral, you're stupid. Okay, and if you're moral, you're smart. I, I like to be smart. Okay, uh, but that there are moral requirements, and those moral requirements are based on standards of rationality. We can think our way to morality. That's what basically what Kant said. And he dubbed this the categorical imperative. Now, there are other philosophers who said the same thing, Locke and Hobbes. They argued that their moral requirements are based on standards of rationality. Okay? It is simply irrational to go and do those things that are morally bad. So the secular philosophers thought good behavior was rational, therefore it was good for society. And you must look at society and say, what is good for society? I must act in an appropriate way. But their rational standards were based upon man's rationality. Schaefer says what? What did he say? Let me make sure I, I have it quoted here. Living by the Christian ethic, acceptance of God's revelation, total immersion and affirmation of the Bible's morals, values, and meaning. Kant says, just be rational. But unfortunately, what is rational to me today next month, next year, next week, might be irrational. And I have redefined morality according to my rationality. Okay? Well, let's face it. In today's world, the moral norms of our present society do not reflect a biblical standard. And, and maybe you're looking and go, well, gee, Rand, when did they ever reflect a biblical standard? And, and really, that's not the issue. Because we don't live back then, we live right now. Our children, our grandchildren face a world that holds different values than they learned from us growing up. Remember those seniors that were lined up here last week? Okay? They are going off to a college where they will face professors and fellow students whose morals and whose moral teaching does not match what they heard here, does not match what they heard in your houses does not match from what they have seen in your lives. Okay? The majority of their professors will teach from a moral perspective that does not come from God's Word. I mean, this is just the world that they're going into. But other things are even more worrisome. They will be faced with moral dilemmas or choices of right and wrong which many of their classmates don't and have never in their lives considered to be moral dilemmas. You understand that? 
They will wrestle with things that their friends that they meet at college had never even considered to be a dilemma. Should I do this or should I not do that? Well, why not? Why not? Because the unbelieving world is not concerned so much with the questions that we are concerned with. They're not asking these great questions, and and we'll see throughout the, the summer more of this. They're not asking these great questions of transcendence. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? What is my purpose according to what God wants me to do? Their questions are, what should I do today in this world? They're not even concerned with some of the things that we wrestle with. Now, we'll flesh that out through the summer, as I said. The non-believing world has found meaning and purpose within themselves, apart from their creator. So the question that we introduced uh, a few weeks ago, this is what we will wrestle with all summer, how do we live? Do we as believers take our faith and our antiquated views that are thousands of years old, antiquated views of right and wrong, do we live them out in our own little protected world? Do we find security there? And I can look at Gordon and say, Gordon, how you doing? Oh, we're great, we're great, because we got our own bubble here. And live apart from the world? Is that how we do it? Do we take our moral stands as weapons and charge into society ready to do battle each and every day? We're going to change the world. Do we have our own culture outside of the mainstream culture? Do we just simply live separate and try not to be corrupted by the culture around us? Do we lash ourselves to Christ and throw ourselves off the safety of what we know and into the maelstrom and just cling to Christ? How do we live in a meaningful and impactful fashion the fruit of the Spirit so that our faithfulness, so that our joy, so that our patience impacts the world around us for Christ? I know that was more than one question. Okay? But that's what we've got to wrestle with because those are, those are issues about how we live as believers. If Christ is real, if his sacrifice is real, if the Holy Spirit lives within us and we're off to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, how shall we then live? Oh, but ran... You don't understand the gospel. See, the gospel is one of grace. This is what some people may say. The gospel is one of grace. It's forgiveness. It's security. Really, the quality of our lives has no bearing upon what the Heavenly Father does for us and to us. There are those who think that, that our lives have no difference. We are saved and and, and the Lord loves us. And really, how we behave is, is not so much an issue. But those words that I mentioned before that Jesus said, you know, the salt and the light and and being a city on the hill, all those types of things, they kind of put a damper on that kind of theology. Because the Lord calls us to live differently. Others will say that our lives need to be perfect. Well, if we're going to go out in the world, we have to live perfectly. If you have sinned, it's evident that you are not a believer, so you need to reconfess Boy, if, if, if every time I sinned, I had to confess, I, I'd never got out of bed. You know, I just pull the blankets over my head and, and not think about anything else. You know, you think of the, the, the monks in, in the monasteries in, in the Middle Ages, and how many, they went to confession every day. What's a monk confess? Well, there they are, living apart from the world. I mean, what do they have to confess? I, I can't live perfectly. I should not be able, expected to live perfectly. And if I could live perfectly, then there's no reason for Christ to come and give his life. He 
was perfect. I am far from perfect. Okay. Let's have an answer to the question. How shall we live as believers in this world? Now, our passage gives us clear answers. Okay? But they don't, the answers are not the, let me give you the, ten, the list of ten things. And here's the very pragmatic because we like it. Often we like to hear, okay, Randy, tell me the ten things I need to do to live a life that's pleasing to God. The scripture doesn't always do that. It doesn't always give us those, those real pragmatic things. Um, because, remember the, who Paul is writing to in the book of Galatians. He's writing to a group of believers who like or who like, who want to go back and live legalistically. They were being influenced by what's called the Judaizers, and they, were, they wanted to go and live according to the law again. Okay? And that's why we have these things that, that and, and Paul you know, mentions, against such things there is no law. Okay? Paul says, I'm going to describe for you some things here that might help you have an objective basis to find out if you're living according to the Spirit, or are you fulfilling the desires of the flesh? Because he makes those two things uh, antithetical to one another. One is the flesh, one is the Spirit. Let's look at verse 19. And he gives us this long list of things that are acts of the sinful nature. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Evident, remember that word. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. Fifteen things he lays out for us that are works of the flesh. If I don't do any of those, am I good? No, Paul adds one other thing on the end of that. And things like these. Ooh. Okay, <laughs> things like these. So this is not the exhaustive list, but he gives it to us as some form of objective measurement. Okay, are you fulfilling the desires of the flesh, oh, or are you doing the fruit? Are you living by the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is what? No law. Okay, because those are things of the spirit. Those are things of the spirit. The acts of the sinful nature are what? Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Okay, they are evident. Now, they are deeds, so it, it means that they are done in public, but it is the desires of the flesh. So what he's talking about here are those things which are in your heart. And do those things in your heart fill your heart? Because sooner or later, if they fill your heart, they will become deeds and you will do them. Okay, this is, this is the, the illustration I always use. If I'm a car thief and I've got a thing for red Corvettes, sooner or later you're going to see me driving around, what, in a red Corvette. Because I love them, they, it, it just fills my heart, and before you know it, hey, Randy, get that Corvette. Okay, well, it flew out of the sinfulness of my own heart. So an evaluation of our outward behavior makes it easy to see the inward desires of our hearts. Because you cannot keep those things in forever. Okay? If your heart is full of these things in 19 and 20 and the early part of 21, they're going to come out. Okay, They may only come out now in secret when you're alone, when nobody else is looking. But sooner or later, they will sneak out and they will become evident. Evident. 
And as I said, these are simply, as he adds, and things like these. These things are only typical of things that were widely viewed in the first century as contrary to God's standard. I'd say those things are even in the 21st century, they are contrary to God's standards and contrary to a life that flows out of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the difference between Paul and his contemporary philosophers, much like the difference between Francis Schaeffer and Immanuel Kant, as an example, is not the content. Kant would say those things are bad, immorality, those things are immoral and irrational, but it's the context because Paul gives an answer. He gives answers to how to live free from these things. Because remember, you're no longer bound by the chains of sin. They no longer hold you. Now, now, sin remains in our lives, but it does not reign in our life as believers. So there is sin in our lives, and we'll slide back into it now and then, but Kant has no answer for those things. Just be more rational. Paul says, the Lord has sent us the Spirit that we might overcome these things. The human philosophers of our day offer no solutions to the immorality that is around us as well, other than to redefine the term of morality. If you see no way to change it, you simply redefine it so that immorality is no longer immorality. And and remember a few weeks ago when I quoted an article that basically said the moral problem that Christianity has is that we are unwilling to let go of those old teachings. We are unwilling to simply say that what has been defined as immoral for the last 4,000 plus years is suddenly moral. Okay, And if we had any brain uh, among us, we would understand and simply redefine it as moral. And not just moral, but to deny that that is now moral would be immoral on our part. Suddenly what, you know, suddenly we're the bad guys. Christians are now the immoral ones because we will not change. Now I have here some good advice, put that in quotes, from a non-believer as to how the church should exist in the 21st century. This is from the Atlantic, a guy named Jonathan Rauch. He argues that if the evangelical church is to last long into the 21st century, certain parts of its moral codes have to change. We have to change. American society is progressing, and if the church won't progress with her, then it will be abandoned. Now, this is based on a popular conception that evangelicals are toxic to society. You didn't know you were poisoned, did you? Okay? You are toxic to society. Remember Richard Dawkins, the, the atheist who's, who's very prominent, famously said that religion is a virus and it must be eradicated. Religion is a virus and it must be eradicated. The refusal by Christians, I'm quoting the article again, the refusal by Christians to provide services for activities that go against their beliefs is now called bigotry. It's not called freedom of religion, it's called bigotry. Laws written to protect businesses that refuse to provide such services are compared to Jim Crow laws. He uses the example of Hobby Lobby's unwillingness to pay for certain contraceptives, and that is derided as misogynist. Misogynist. Behind all of these charges is the suspicion 
that evangelicals are simply refusing to accept contemporary American mores. They are privileging their faith over the moral spirit of the age. You better believe we're privileging our faith over the moral spirit of the age. I mean, if we stop holding to our faith rather than living according to the moral spirit of the age, let's just close the doors because we're no longer believers. No longer believers. He goes on, polls find that year by year Americans are growing more secular. The trend is particularly pronounced among the young, many of whom have come to equate religion with intolerance. As laws on issues like same-sex marriage and contraception have changed, there's a growing fear that public policy will become more and more in conflict with evangelical morality. This, according to many conservative Christians, is what these tensions are about, being legally required to perform acts that you sincerely and deeply believe are immoral. Okay? That's the tension. This guy is not a believer, okay? But he thinks there's an important role for the church in society. It's just that, as you'll see, as we, there's a little bit left here, the church has got to look a little bit more like society in his mind. To a large extent, this tension has been caused by a shift in what we think of as the domain of morality. The vocabulary we use to describe this domain has changed from the language of morality to the language of rights. We don't say things are immoral now. Those people have a right to live that way, in whatever way they so, and it's wrong for us to say that it is immoral. They can't be immoral. It's their right. This also represents a shift in the dominant moral vocabulary of the United, of the United States toward the autonomous individual. Because it's all about me, right? And I'm a free, autonomous individual, and what I want is right for me. And you can't tell me that it's not right for me. In fact, if you attempt to help me understand that it's not right for me, you're small-minded, you're bigoted, you're immoral to attempt to foster that upon me. Often ethical choices are framed as purely personal, insulated from any external judgment. You can't judge me. Have you heard that? You can't judge me. It's right for me. Personal morality inevitably becomes part of public life. This is what inspires such outrage in the world. Worship your God. Follow his archaic commands. Just don't let your religion impose on my right to live as I please. Mm. And not only don't let your religion impose on my right to live as I please, but you need to understand that if necessary, you must facilitate my right to live in the way that I choose, even if it's immoral to you. And if you fail to do so, you will be described as the immoral one. It is completely turned on its head. And you know, one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith is that a faith in Christ must be lived in the public square. Must, must, must. It is no good to have this faith and go home and protect it and keep it safe and share it maybe with your, your spouse and your kids and nobody else and then keep it 
silent on the way to church and get to church and talk about your faith in church and then before you leave the door, close it in again so nobody knows. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is lived out here. Okay, because of this, the article again, the real debate isn't about whether morality should be public or private. It's about figuring out what kind of moral impositions are are tolerable and fair in a pluralistic society. We've got to redefine morality because society is changing. That's basically what he is saying. Can traditional evangelicalism continue to exist as social mores increasingly conflict with that tradition? This is his conclusion, and it, it just pains me to read this. But this is his conclusion. Remember, he's pro-church. Even though he doesn't believe, he thinks it's important. And this is his conclusion. It is hard to ignore the implication that the only truly tolerable form of religion in the United States is a private one that comfortably aligns with the country's changing mores. That's the only church that's going to survive. The church that looks just like the world around it. What good is that? I mean, that, that, that flies in the, in the face of everything that Christ tells us to do. How can you be salt? I mean, put salt, too, with too much salt in your cake. Can you eat it? Okay? Put salt in somebody's Coke. You know, as teenagers, when they would look away, we'd put salt in their Coke, and they would think it was really funny, and they'd come back and drink it and go, oh, it tastes awful. Sometimes Christians are an awful taste in the mouth of the world. Why? Because we're salty. If we don't taste salty, we're useless. If we're not different from the world around us, we are simply not living out the Christian faith. Now, I, I, just, I was out of control this week. I got you know, 2,000 more words that we'll have to pick up next week. Okay, so this is part one. But I want you to understand that Paul lists out here 15 acts of the sinful nature, and he divides it into four categories. Illicit sex, heresy, social conflict, which was big at, at the church of Galatia, and drunkenness. Okay? And next week, we're going to touch on these things as well as how to walk by the Spirit. Okay, Rand, if we're going to be different, if those are the things that we're going to face when we go out into the world, how can we do this, and how should our life be lived? How shall we then live? I want you to look at one thing here that is that Paul makes it clear. Verse 21. Paul gives us a very severe warning. He finishes his list, envying drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom. There are no qualifiers there now what do you mean practice those things oh well i i participate in those so am i out okay oh those who habitually unrepentantly and purposely pursue these things immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery that entire list if you do that unrepentantly and purposely you're just not part of the kingdom okay you don't Christ has not changed your life. You can say all you want. Oh, yes, I became a believer when I was 13. I put my hand up. I went forward. 
but these are the things that you practice. Are you really saved? He said, those people who habitually, purposefully, unrepentantly practice these things, you're not part of the kingdom. But thanks be to God, the forgiveness of Christ awaits people who practice these things unrepentantly. Their eyes need to be opened, their hearts changed to the things of Christ, and they can leave those things forever. Now, every believer struggles with sin. Okay? We might fall into this, we might slide into this, even for a season, but we know it's wrong and we want to get out of it. That is different from those who habitually, unrepentantly, purposely practice sinful activities. Christ is gracious to us. He calls us out of the things of the world that our lives might be different. And for those who counsel the church to stop living differently from the world around us, just stop going against the flow. Get in. Hook up with the mores of society as they change. Look like the rest of society. Paul gives us a warning. If you do, you will not be part of the kingdom. You are outside the kingdom. Do we have a moral imperative about how we are to live? You bet your life. In fact, you bet your eternal life we do. And that is to live according to the call of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a challenge this is before us as we look at the world and how they're they're redefining what is moral. Now when, when believers refuse to participate in what you have defined as immoral for thousands of years now we are suddenly called immoral how shall we then live in this world lord thank you that you did not give your son to die raise him from the dead that he ascended into heaven and then you sent us off to live on our own but you have given us the holy spirit that he might fill us, that he might empower us and strengthen us, that he might guide us. You have given us your word to demonstrate these things and to show us what you expect of us as believers. How shall we then live? It is here in your word. You place us in this world that we might be salt and light, that the things of Christ would flow from our mouths, his graciousness and the joy Words of of peace and kindness and encouragement. Words that you use to change lives through the work of the Spirit. The declaration of Christ as the only Lord and Savior. And he calls each of us into that relationship. You empower our hands to do the works which you have prepared before the foundations of the earth. Our feet are beautiful because they take the good news to those who need to hear it. How shall we then live in this world? We shall live according to your word, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.